invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Timothy 5, verses 23 through 25. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Today we finish our time in 1 Timothy 5. Last time we were here, we spent our time considering Paul's charge to the church regarding the nature of sin, and particularly sin among elders. We saw the exhortation that the church would not receive an accusation against an elder, but before two or three witnesses, two or three people who have firsthand knowledge of the offense, that being a means by which to protect those who are in moral authority, and that being a recognition of the fact that the church, uh, by virtue of the reality of their choice, uh, to honor, to ordain this man, uh, that he is worthy of that benefit of the doubt, if you will, and that double honor. But if there is sin among the elders, them that sin, those elders that sin, should be rebuked before all, Paul wrote, that others also may fear, and that this procedure must always be done in a manner that is without partiality, without preferring one another uh, objectively as it relates to the Word of God and not in a manner that is, uh, if we can use the word political, in nature. Perhaps better, not in a manner that is carnal in nature. We come to these final three verses and we are still very much talking about the nature of choosing elders in the church and the nature and the importance of choosing elders and how to go about that process. I had initially intended to add these three verses to the last message, but that last message was pretty long, and uh, it, there was just too much content to try to get it all in. And then as I was looking toward these three verses, I had intended to focus some time on one of the rare occasions where I could uh, elaborate upon an under, a biblical understanding of the nature of Christians as it relates to uh, intoxicating substances, alcohol, and such, as we see that in verse 23 today. But we're not quite going to go in, in that direction. Certainly, we're going to bring it up. We're going to talk through it uh, to a degree today. But our focus will really primarily be upon these final two verses. As Paul is still speaking about the nature of elders in the church and the importance of picking them carefully, we'll see a very extremely important message for us, not only to hear, but to carefully absorb and to assimilate into our lives about our hearts, about my heart, about your heart, about the nature of sin, about the fruit of spirituality and godliness. It's a very contextual message. So if you didn't hear last week's message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it as we're still talking about this nature of elders, really the last three messages are all very closely linked. But it's an important message because at the end of the day, we rise and fall not on the perception that other people have of us spiritually, but much rather on the God who knows exactly who we are. So we step into this passage and let me read a little bit of context here. Paul says, beginning in verse 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands, that would be ordination as we talked about it last week, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other man's sins, keep thyself pure. Then he says in verse 23, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. So we find here a very interesting call, one which is worthy of our attention. Paul here compels Timothy to stop as a general rule drinking water and instead to drink a little wine. And he does this, he, he exhorts this for the sake of two things. First, he says, for his stomach's sake. And second, he says, for his often infirmities. And we find this very interesting because of what we already know about the commands of Paul as it relates to ministers of the gospel. That we have already studied in 1 Timothy chapter 3 some very specific 
elements as it relates to the relationship between ministers of the gospel and wine or alcoholic beverages. So we see an exhortation to both the pastors and the deacons in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3.3, Paul says as it relates to the qualifications of the bishop, pastor, the elder, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy or of, of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. And then we see as it relates to the deacons in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. So we find that the concept of not being given to wine is one which undergirds the expectation not only of the pastor, but also of the deacon. And as we mentioned when we spoke of these qualifications, uh, these are not uniquely directed towards ministers per se with the exception, as I mentioned last week, of the idea of being apt to teach. What we find as it relates to those qualifications of bishops and deacons is that these are expectations that fall upon the entirety of the church body, but then those among the church who set an exemplary, uh, uh, well, an example, right? Who are exemplary as it relates to these things are the ones that the church ought to be looking for for the possibility among the men of ordination. Uh, the, the ministers, the bishops and the deacons are called to exemplify what every believer ought to be, and thus they can lead as examples to the flock as First Peter calls for the elders of the church to lead. So when the bishop or the deacon is called to be no striker or not greedy of filthy lucre, money, these are not unique to the minister, are they? You don't read that and say, oh, well, uh, I can be greedy of filthy lucre, but not pastor, because pastor is a pastor, so he's not allowed to be greedy of filthy lucre, but the rest of the church is okay. Pastor can't be a violent man. He, 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 he has to be no striker, but the rest of you, it's fine. That's not how it works, right? The pastor is intended to exemplify these virtues, these biblical virtues, to the church, to be an example to the flock and have a firm grasp upon these things himself. And the same thing can be said as it relates to this idea of not being given to wine. This is not something that is unique to ministers as we see it in the scriptures. Rather, we see it rather expected of all believers. So Paul calls upon Titus in Titus chapter 2 to, see, to teach sound doctrine to the church. And within this exhortation unto sound doctrine, we read in Titus chapter 2 verse 3, the aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors, becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So we see that the elder women in the church, those who are to teach the younger women, uh, are to be women who are not given to much wine as well, just as we would see as an expectation of a elder, a, a, a pastor, a bishop, and as a deacon within the church. More generally still, we can go to that very common exhortation of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where he says to the, the church there, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We note that the call to not be drunk with wine is given within this context as a definitive contrast, whereby Paul states by way of interpretation that there is a natural conflict between having a mind-altering substance in your body and the ability of the Holy Spirit to properly lead us in our lives. And that's the contrast that is being painted here. That when one is under the influence of some intoxicating substance, he is not able simultaneously to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit fully. And so we see this contrast, don't be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And there, that contrast is meant to teach us uh, of the nature of these substances. So we can say, it's enough here to say, as we interpret this through the contrast, that whenever we are under the influence of a mind-altering substance, to that degree, we are not able to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, and thus to that degree we are quenching the Spirit of God. We are not walking in the Spirit, thus we're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, because you must walk in the Spirit in order to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And if we are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then we are naturally falling short of the commission that Christ has given us to be disciples. Jesus says in John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. The disciple of Jesus Christ is one who bears fruit. 
The one who bears fruit is the one who is walking in the Spirit, for indeed it is called the fruit of the Spirit. To be under the regular influence of a mind-altering substance is to not be able to be filled with the Spirit, as there is a direct contrast being made between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And thus to be under the influence of a mind-altering substance is to quench the Spirit of God in my life, should He be there by, by grace through faith. And thus, by quenching the Spirit, I cannot be filled with the Spirit. I cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit. I am falling short of the disciples' commission. And that is the interpretive path that we would take along this line. So we establish this principle. And characteristically, what we do in, in our Christian circles then is we combine this principle about being drunk with wine about being uh, uh, under the influence of a mind-altering substance. And then we combine that with the specific warnings in Scripture, the wisdom warnings of Scripture in the Proverbs to round out the warnings of danger. So Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So we see this exhortation unto wisdom that says those who are deceived by the by the promises, and we, we won't get into all of, uh, of the reasons why a person might be driven to allow mind-altering substances. Of course, not just talking about all, uh, uh, alcohol, but drugs as well. All of the reasons why a person might be deceived into allowing those substances to control them. Proverbs twenty one seventeen: He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. They're not so much speaking of the danger of intoxicating beverage, but wine and oil being uh, paired there, speaking of the lavish things. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 being very specific in this. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. The warnings of this passage are familiar to those who are familiar with, with those who have been under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Specifically keyed into alcohol here in Proverbs 23, Solomon describes a man who has woe, sorrow, and contention, the emotional consequences of intoxication, how it leads people, some to depression, some to anger. We speak of the angry drunk. We speak of the sad drunk. We speak of, of how that, that influences their families, how that influences their relationships, of, of, of the tremendous amount of strain and strife that uh, intoxication of any sort puts upon relationships, the incapacity for parents to take care of and to lead their children, for fathers and husbands to lead their wives, for, for wives to obey and submit to their husbands, and for the whole family to walk in the way of the Lord. Proverbs speaks to this will, well. Solomon describes a babbler, one who has wounds without cause, one who has redness of eyes, a man who has lost control of his propriety, a man who is suffering physical consequences of his inebriation, a man who gets hurt but doesn't even know it because he is so outside of his senses that as he's falling and as he's getting bumps and bruises, if not worse, we read about how, and, and it's very common when there's a, 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 an accident with a drunk driver, how the drunk driver uh, almost effectively walks away from the accident that others have died in. Why is that? Well, because he is so outside of himself. He, he, is, he is so uh, uh, outside of his own senses that he doesn't, his, his, his reflexes do not even know to tense their muscles. Many of those things, those, the, the tensing of the muscles, the reflex actions are often uh, what can cause a lot of those injuries, right? Because there's a tearing of the muscles when they're tense and they get lashed about. Uh, but because the alcoholic might even have at that point be passed out behind the wheel, many of those injuries do not afflict him, though, uh, well, do not, do, do not phase him, though, though he, he sustains many of those external injuries. 
Verse 33, thine eyes shall behold strange women and thy heart shall utter perverse things. Things which would never otherwise leave the, the gate, of pass through the mind, hit the discernment of the mind, and so would never leave the mouth. They're going to leave the mouth because the gate of that discernment is, is not functioning. The, the protections that a man would normally put in place against sexual immorality, or a woman for that matter, against sexual immorality, are, 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 are torn down so that as you consider the nature of culture, one of the primary ways that people would seek to get someone into an illicit sexual relationship would be to get them drunk, right? Why is that? Because they lose their inhibitions. Because there is a loss of volition. There is a loss of understanding. There is a loss of discernment. And so we see these warnings. One who has wounds without cause, redness of eyes, lost control of his propriety, finally here, describes this person as one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Even when he's lying down, he feels as though he's rocking back and forth in a boat. The idea of, of, of not having balance, this is reflected even in law enforcement, or at least it used to be. Now they've got some technology. But when I was, when I was being trained into law enforcement, we were still really big on walk the line, Right? Get a person out of their car and see if they can walk a straight line. Why? Because a lot of people who are inebriated cannot walk a straight line. Like if you're on a boat, trying to get from the front of the boat to the back of the boat, if you're not careful, you're going to be flung out of the boat because it's rocking back and forth, right? That's the idea. And the message of the drunk, of the inebriated, of the intoxicated is this. They've stricken me and I was not sick. They've beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I awake? Again, reflecting that this man is so outside of his own senses that he doesn't even remember what's happening while he's intoxicated. And finally, he says, when shall I awake? I'll seek it yet again. The alcoholic wakes up from his inebriated state. He sleeps it off. And when he's returned to a degree, at least to his own senses, he might wonder what happened in those hours for which he cannot account. What shame did he cause? What ways was he degraded or in what ways did he degrade others in that time? He doesn't know unless someone else tells him because he was not in control of himself. And the most interesting human nature part about this is that he says, I'll seek it again. I'm going to do that again. One more passage from the Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verses 4 through 7. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Again, a very clear and strong warning from Lemuel to his, uh, to, from Lemuel's mother to him. Lemuel's mother says, leave alcohol for those who are in pain. Leave alcohol for those who need to forget their lives and their circumstances. Their capacity has already been crippled by some other element of life and circumstances. And it would not harm self or society anymore for them to be completely removed from the realities of this life. So leave the, the intoxicating substances to those sorts of people. But for those who have responsibility, here, of course, he's training to be king. She says, Lemuel, you, you become inebriated and now you pervert justice. God forbid that you would do that. You become inebriated and you forget the law. And the afflicted are not given righteous judgment. God forbid that that would happen. You can't afford to become inebriated, Lemuel, she's saying. You can't afford that. Now, of course, this is a king, but we can extend this. Those who need their faculties about them in order to function for themselves and for others and for society. You can't afford to be checked out of life. You can't afford to, to be diverted from reality in such a way. You can't afford that window of time where you might pervert judgment, where you might utter perverse things, where you might give yourself to strange women. You can't afford that. 
So we have all of these scriptural precedents and understanding the dangers of uh, intoxication. We see the principle as it lays out, be not drunk with wine when it is excess, but be filled with the spirit. Then we see all of these wisdom warnings in the Proverbs as it relates to the nature of uh, intoxication or inebriation. And this precedent lends us to a very sound conclusion that alcohol and other mind-altering substances are dangerous. We have known stories of men and women who have tried such things, become addicted, and their lives have been destroyed. Indeed, there's maybe one in every 50 people that I speak with at the jail who does not have an addiction to some mind-altering substance that would account in large part for the reason why they're in jail to begin with. And yet when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, we are forced to reconcile all of these wisdom warnings and even 1 Timothy chapter 3's warnings to the bishop and to the deacon about not being given too much wine with an understanding that Paul is exhorting Timothy, an elder, and subject to those qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, to stop drinking water and to drink a little wine. And there are several things which we must consider as it relates to this. First, we notice the very important modifier, little. All right? In contrast to tarrying long at the wine, in contrast to being given to much wine, Paul explicitly calls for Timothy to use a little wine. Second, we notice an important purpose. Timothy was experiencing various health problems, described first as something to do with his stomach, and second as an often infirmity. Digestion problems are one of the first and most common bodily signs of stress and of busyness. Indeed, it is not uncommon among pastors, particularly, your pastor included, to develop digestion complications as a natural extension of the burdens that we're asked to bear. I was reading a book on the history of ministers, and I was amazed as I read that book how many of them had tremendous health complications. <laughs> and it, part of that might be uh, the, the nature of a satanic attack, right? And the idea that Paul espouses in 2 Corinthians 12 of a thorn in the flesh and the Lord giving us that thorn in the flesh that we might be strong in his weakness. But there is something to be said for the fact that when you bear spiritual burdens, there's going to be a natural ramification upon the body. And I've experienced this. I know many a minister who has. And so Timothy was experiencing some of these things. We don't know why. We can't levy it on directly upon the ministry itself. But throughout history, drinking wine has been a common way of dealing with various digestion issues. It is acidic, so it's not always the best for things such as acid reflux and heartburn. But it has often been used as a remedy for digestion issues throughout the centuries. As far as Timothy's other infirmities, we don't know what these were. But under the assumption that Timothy is called to drink alcoholic wine, this substance has been used commonly, of course, throughout the history as a means by which to manage pain. And I, as I say that, under the assumption that Timothy is being called here to drink alcoholic wine, I say that because it's not assumed by all, but as far as I'm concerned, this is the only assumption that is contextually warranted here. There's no way I can see contextually to get around the fact that this was Wine, alcoholic wine. Now we've read all three exhortations of Paul in 1 Timothy today as it relates to wine, right? We read it in 1 Timothy 3, 3, 3, 8, and then here in 5, 23. The first two speak of a deacon and a bishop not being given too much wine. And there can be no question that Paul is speaking of alcoholic wine here, right? There would be no reason to say that a pastor is disqualified because he's given to drink a lot of grape juice. Right? There, there's nothing that, that wouldn't even make sense. There's nothing about overindulging on grape juice that would cause a man to be disqualified from ministry. Being an alcoholic would be what disqualifies a man from being a minister. Allowing himself to become intoxicated and thus to utter perverse things, uh, give his uh, heart over to strange women, uh, pervert judgment. These are things that a pastor cannot afford to not be filled with the Spirit, to not be led of the Spirit, to, to lose that discernment. Paul then uses the same word, wine, here in chapter 5, but he does it without any redefinition or clarification. And take note of that. 
The absence of a redefinition or a clarification of this word demands that we understand it in the same way he used it in 1 Timothy 3. For us to impose a different definition of wine upon this passage, to say as some do that this is grape juice, unfermented wine, is either to change the qualifications of a minister, right, to grape juice, to not drinking much grape juice, or it is to believe that Paul changed the definition of wine mid-context without telling Timothy or any of the billions of people that would read this verse over the, 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 the millennia to come. And that is interpretively silly, is it not? That, that's unfounded. That's crazy. We can't do that to the text. To do that is to do a utter disservice to the text. And here's what happens. We do that to this text. And then someone gets a bee in their bonnet about another text. And so they do it to that text. And next thing you know, we've explained away all the texts we don't like. And then our children grow up hearing all of these explanations. And then one day they realize that that's not what the Bible says. And then they feel they've been lied to. And then they say, what else have I been lied to about? And now we're in a pickle, aren't we? And then we have three quarters of people leaving the church. Let's just be honest. Let's be honest with the word of God. Let's be honest with what it says. And then let's allow the implications of the text to speak for themselves. The only thing that makes sense is that Paul was calling Timothy to a moderate practice of drinking alcoholic wine in order to receive the benefits from its effects without being subject to its dangers and detriments. In the same way that we might take some NyQuil before bed, though it has a measure of alcohol in it, in order to benefit from its effects medicinally while not necessarily having all of the dangers and detriments of alcohol. So Paul was calling Timothy to use this resource at his disposal to provide for his own well-being to function the best he could. And we should not as Christians be afraid to admit this. And this can stir up other discussions, discussions which I'm not going to be able to cover today. Medicinal partaking of mind-altering substance, whether that be alcohol or drugs in moderation, and then that being contrasted with recreational use of mind-altering substances uh, in moderation. That's an example of a debate for another day, another forum. And there are discussions there that are valid for another day. But there's no interpretive warrant that I can find to understand this passage in any other way, nor do I think we need one. If we broaden our outlook to the whole of the New Testament, the inter this interpretation is fully consistent with biblical example and with Paul's teaching related to sound doctrine. Now, naturally, I'm not attempting to imply here, let me be clear, that mind-altering substances are not dangerous. I think we covered that. Proverbs, the wisdom, right? The, the wisdom of Proverbs makes this clear. These things should not be taken lightly, nor would I ever advise them to be consumed outside of a definitive purpose and under a controlled set of circumstances. But there is a difference between my exhortations for you to align with the Proverbs wisdom and my teaching to you regarding sound doctrine and biblical expectations of God in Christ. It is also recognized that as this is not a message on alcohol specifically, I've made no attempt to dig into the number of arguments, particularly prolific in our circles, made in an attempt to prove that alcohol is in fact explicitly sinful in every instance whether that's the high priest argument or whether that be the new wine argument. And if you don't know what these mean, fine, these words aren't for you. But if you do know what I mean by those arguments and would like some satisfaction to one or all of these elements or these arguments, these accounts, please see me individually. We'll open a Bible. We'll talk about it together, and I'd be happy to do that with you. But we continue today into verse 24. Paul's still speaking to Timothy, and he says this. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men, they follow after. Now, this seems to take us back to the words of Paul that were previously mentioned about elders. We seem to be jumping back into a context here, but may I reorient your mind on that? May I perhaps have you entertain the thought that Paul never left the context to begin with? 
It would seem almost that Paul made a random divergence, right? He's speaking about elders. He's speaking about honoring them. He's speaking about not harboring accusations against them. He's speaking about rebuking them when they sin before all. He's saying, lay hands suddenly, ordain men. Don't ordain men suddenly. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Don't be a partaker in other men's sins. When there is an elder that's sinning, you need to take care of that so you're not a partaker in his sin. Let nothing, uh, none of these things be done with partiality. You need to make sure that you're spiritual and not carnal as you do all of these things. And we have all of those things in place. And then all of a sudden he says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your oft infirmities. It almost seems like Paul is jumping out of context. And then we'll see as we study verse 24 and 25 that he's jumping then back into context. But may I propose a different idea? I wonder if, similar to our own churches today, the church there at Ephesus might have had such a high regard for the dangers that accompanied wine, and rightfully so, that Timothy, that Timothy himself was purposefully refusing to partake in any wine, though it would help him as a means by which to avoid a conflict in testimony and operation that would accompany the choice of taking a little wine and thus incur upon himself this church discipline. That there would be a public rebuke of Timothy if he were to partake in such an indulgence. And I wonder if that's why Paul put it here. So that directly in the midst of a conversation specifically about holding elders accountable for sin, Paul instructs Timothy to drink a little wine, thus cutting off any argument that anyone in the church might have against Timothy for taking care of his body in this manner. Because Paul had counted this action on Timothy's part not, to be not sinful, and so much so that he called Timothy to do it within a context specifically related to sin and elders. That's just a theory. Trying to figure out why Paul would have put it right there. And then jumped back into a context of elders. So Paul tells Timothy, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. Some men they follow after. Now again, this applies well beyond just elders, but the immediate context is most certainly church discernment as it relates to choosing elders. There are those whose sins are obvious, Paul says. They reveal blatantly, unquestionably, their perversion, their depravity, their godlessness. These are those who, though we do not judge a man's eternity, bear no fruit of spiritual of spirituality in their lives, no spiritual life, no spiritual liveliness, who fail to relate to spiritual things who or to understand how these things relate to them, whether it be that they're, they're in, in, in gross negligence of their, their spiritual standing or whether they are unbelievers as a whole. And these men's sins, Paul says, they're open beforehand. They are manifest. They are clear. Everybody knows them. You look at that guy and you say, that guy is a sinner. We would have very little question as to their disposition. They are walking towards judgment and they're happy to do it, right? And those people are out there because of their sin, their shamelessness, it's open to all. And these men have no business, of course, being elders in the church, right? And, and, and the church of Ephesus, nobody would have any argument with this. You see a guy come in, you look at him, you say, that guy is not qualified to be an elder. Maybe he's in the church. Maybe uh, he's working on some things, whatever the case may be. But you say, that guy, he's not going to be an elder anytime soon. Those are the easy ones. And Paul lays out the easy ones so that he can contrast it. He did, Paul, of course, describes these type of men in various places in the scriptures. We see this sort of idea, men whose sins are open beforehand, men who are openly sinning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 12, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He would say a similar thing in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, Emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we've discussed this before. Paul is by no means saying here that if a person does any particular sin on these lists, because he succumbed to temptation, 
he acknowledges his sin, he repents of his sin, that this man, for the time that he is in that sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what Paul is saying, right? Paul is not saying that if you do anything on this list as a believer who loves the Lord and who has fallen into a measure of temptation or into a measure of backsliding, that that means you're not a believer. The Bible contradicts this without controversy, does it not? With great clarity, the Bible tells us Heaven is not something to be earned by our own merits. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If your salvation can be earned, if your salvation can be deserved, then Christ's death is unnecessary. If the fact that you sin disqualifies you from heaven, then there is no hope in this life or the life to come. But if, not our, our own righteousness, not by our own righteousness, not our own righteousness in any facet, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the means by which we enter heaven. If salvation is not about what we can do, but what has been done for us already, if we are saved by God's mercy and not by our merit, then Christ's death becomes the most important thing in the world, the most important thing in the history of history, in this world or the next. And this is what the Bible teaches. This is what we read here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is what we read in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It is then, once we have been saved by God's grace and his mercy, once we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, once we have been declared righteous by no merit of our own, once God has broken the chains of our sin, it is only then, you know, that we begin to change. And not that we change, but instead we are changed. We are changed by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. As we submit to the Spirit, we're conformed to the image of Christ. To this end, then, it is we know that when Paul gives these lists of sins that men commit, it is not that Paul is telling us that any man who commits one of these sins is doomed to hell. But rather, as Paul has described to Timothy, that there are those who, whose sins are open beforehand going unto judgment. Those who live in these sins, those who, who love their sin, those whose lives are defined by their sin, those who sin has consumed them wholly and without repentance, without interest. Those who live outside any compulsion, those who live outside any chastening hand of the Lord, uh, though that chastening hand of the Lord might be slow, it's there. Those who are, no, not, who are not pursued by the Lord because they are defined by their sin. There is not one believer on this earth who, whose identity is in their sin. It's impossible. Once you have become covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, once you are adopted into the family of God, you are a child of God, you are a child of God. That is your identity. Paul speaks in Galatians chapter 5. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about those who's, uh, of whose identity is in their sin. And Paul says, and such were some of you in 1 Corinthians 6, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified. What does it mean? It means that that's no longer your identity. It means you might still do these things as the, as the sanctifying work of the Lord is still working in your heart to bring you about within you the image of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But your identity, you are a child of the living God. That's you. That's what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians chapter 5. Those who are identified, who are sinners, right? That is their identity. They, they, they are identified by their sin. They live in their sin. They are not under the blood of Christ. They are not adopted into the family of God. So Paul speaks of these whose sins are open beforehand, but then he contrasts it and he says, and some men they follow after. So some men are running for judgment, right? They, are, they, they have put on their, 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 their carnal running shoes and they are just beelining it to judgment. They want it. They're, they're, they've owned it. They're living in it. They're defined by it. Paul says, but there's another type of people who are going to be in judgment one day. There's a group that follows after. There's the group that, that lags behind. These are those whose sins are not open and manifest but they're just as lost. 
whose lives don't bear the external marks of a life of deep and abiding sin, but they're still just as much defined by sin in their heart. They're just as lost, just as judged, just as condemned as those whose sin is open, going before to judgment. All throughout Jesus's ministry, he contended with just such men, did he not? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees particularly as it relates to those who follow after. Jesus called them whited sepulchers. Beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. He described them as having clean cups on the outside, but the inside of the cup was filthy. These are men who were externally moral people. The kind of guy that you would be entirely comfortable around as, as a believer. The kind of people who, uh, who love the moral things, who follow the moral precepts, who are benefiting from those moral precepts, who, who are passionate about those moral precepts. People who conform to a moral standard, but who have never, and, and perhaps standards too, depending on our church system, right? They have conformed to all of the standards. They look it on the outside. They're wearing the right things. They're listening to the right things. They're, they're saying the right things. They, they've got it all together. They've sanitized themselves externally. But who have never been internally renewed. And make no mistake, Christ's finished righteousness through his death and his resurrection is the only way to be reconciled to God. There is no reconciliation in morality to God. There is no reconciliation in a set of standards to God. No other prophet can reconcile you to God but Jesus Christ. No other religious system can reconcile you to God save that which is found through Jesus Christ. No merit of your own can reconcile you to God. Only Jesus Christ of Nazareth and him alone. So that John 3, 18 tells us, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Belief on the Lord Jesus Christ is the only standard by which a man avoids the realities of condemnation and of judgment. All of those who by any other means or motive seek to be worthy of God will find that they will fall short on the day of judgment. Their sin may not be open beforehand, but they are of those who follow after unto judgment. They who live seeking to please God by their moral outward trappings, yet all they're doing is cleansing the outside of the cup and the inside is filthy. The evil heart, the sin, the definition of sin in, in the identity of sin in them remains. They who seek to live in a manner that convinces people they love God while living a total lie on the inside. And the extent to which this goes extends all the way to those who would profess a love for Jesus Christ himself and yet never submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ to be clothed in his righteousness. So that Jesus warns in relation to teachers in the church in John 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Now there are none among us today that would necessarily look at and label those whose sins are open beforehand going unto judgment. It's very difficult because we can't see hearts, right? Usually those people don't like to hang out in Bible-believing churches such as this, so we don't see a lot of people whose sins are open beforehand uh, regularly fellowshipping among us, per se, within the church. Certainly when we, when we leave these, these doors, you ought, I, hope you, I hope you do. I hope you're among them. If you're not, there's something deeply wrong. But this other category, those who follow after, that's a little bit different, isn't it? Some of them may be sitting here today. Those who follow after, whose sins are not open beforehand, but are still dead in those sins. You've never submitted to Christ's redeeming work. You may look the part, you may play the part, you may sound the part, you may act the part, you may be a good person by your own definition, however we define that today, right? And while 
I've been committing all of my attention to the broader principles for the last little bit. Let's focus on the teaching back in the context where we find it. There are men who come into the church and they look good and they sound good and they act good, but they're a mess on the inside and we ordain them to ministry. We do. And it's not uncommon for the church to identify these. I remember talking to a, a man. His family came here several years ago. And their family had, he had just received Christ. He was the last one in his family. His wife received Christ, then his children received Christ, then he received Christ. And they were growing and they were learning and they were passionate and they came here. And we, we sat down with them uh, one time for a meal. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, I, I received Christ as my savior. And we went to this church. And he said, we were attending the church for three weeks and the pastor came up to me and asked if I teach Sunday school. He said, and I just got saved. Three weeks ago, you know, he had just been saved and the pastor's already trying to put him into a position of ministry. People who just get saved and they're, they're being voted into deacons boards and they're being put on a path toward ministry uh, and, and they're being uh, uh, grossly, minimally trained and then being sent out to the wolves, basically. And this is not uncommon. But here's the thing. Not every man who is unqualified for ministry appears unqualified for ministry. There are men whose sins are open beforehand. You look at a guy, you say, yeah, that guy's not going to be a minister. And then there are others that you look at and you say, wow, that guy could make a great minister, but you don't know that within their heart is dead men's bones. You don't know that in fact they are a mess and they are struggling and they're so busy trying to hide it that they're not getting it fixed because really it can't go both ways. You can't both hide your sin and fix your sin. You either put all of your effort into hiding your sin or you put all of your effort into fixing your sin. And when you start hiding your sin, you stop fixing your sin. And when you're ready to fix your sin, the thing that you got to do is stop hiding your sin. So not every man who is unqualified appears unqualified. Just because a man's sin is not open beforehand, just because he lives out his days in the church without being questioned, just because he's that guy that no one's ever had a problem with, this by no means in itself implies spirituality. And just because a man enters into the church and he impresses with his knowledge and his zeal and he appears to have all of his ducks in a row and he sounds good and he looks good and the church ordains him and plugs him in and, and, this, the, the, and all of this happens, that, that doesn't mean he's actually in a good place. That doesn't mean he's qualified. And time will reveal this. And unfortunately, for many churches, it reveals it way too late for that church. So how does the church protect itself from such a fate? Verse 25, likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. This verse has a very interesting construction in the Greek, which helps us seek to what Paul is trying to say here. At first, we'd be, be tempted to make these two statements in verses 24 and 25 directly parallel. That just as those, there are those who are fitted for judgment uh, and, and obviously some who are manifest and some who are not, so that one must be careful in judging the externals. So too, there are those who are spiritual men, some who are clearly manifest and some who are not. But the Greek construction does not support this parallelism. The first half of each verse is entirely parallel, using in fact the same Greek word to describe those who are open and manifest. There are those whose sins are open and manifest, headed unto judgment. There's no question. You see the fruit of their lives. They are those who are dedicated to, to, to sin. And you say, yep, I know exactly where they're headed. I know exactly the path that they're on and, and they're on it and they know they're on it and I know they're on it and everyone knows they're on it and we're not, no, we're not fooling anyone here. And then there are those who are spiritual and you can see it. It radiates out of their being. You know it. You know they love the Lord. You know they love his word. You see them bearing the fruit of the spirit. It's in them. It's around them. It is, it is upon them. There are those who, the, the, the good works of some in the same way are manifest beforehand. They are manifest, they're very clear. But the second half of these verses is different. Verse 24 describes men who follow after unto that same judgment, but not obviously. And those are the ones we warn against, right? Verse 25, the second half of verse 25 is a contrast. Paul says, some men's good works are manifest before all, and if I could give a literal translation of the second half of that verse, it would be this. And there is no power to conceal the ones who are otherwise. 
There is no power to conceal the ones who are otherwise. The good works of some are open and manifest, and there's no power to hide the ones that are otherwise. Eventually, those whose good works are not there will bear that fruit. In time, those who aren't right spiritually will bear that fruit. Those who are Christ's will be known. Those who love the Lord will be known. This is the whole point of the qualifications. Find a man who has borne out those qualifications. Find men who have consistently reflected them in a manner that cannot be hid. Find men that you know aren't faking it. That you know have exemplary Christian testimonies. Because the marks of a spiritual man, while not always entirely overt, are impossible to forge. Impossible to forge. A man can forge morality. He can conjure it up in his flesh. But a man cannot forge the fruit of the Spirit because it's a product of God. A man can forge intellectual knowledge of the Bible, but a man cannot forge spiritual understanding and discernment because that's a product of God. An unbeliever can be driven to morality by any number of things, by his guilt, by whatever, but only the spiritual man can submit to conviction and find in his confession release and restoration to fellowship. Now in this we have the final call to take great care and patience in ordination. Lay hands suddenly upon no man, Paul said in verse 22. Because you see a man who looks good and sounds good, and just because a man has passion and desire, this does not necessarily mean he should be in the ministry. There's a lot of ways that a person can go to serve the Lord without becoming a bishop, without becoming a deacon. Because while the good fruit of spiritual men is openly manifest, those who are not spiritual but playing the part, those whose sin is not open beforehand but follow after into that judgment, that will be made manifest. But sometimes that takes time. Now we know this on a practical level, right? You meet a person on a, uh, for the first time, you don't ask them to marry you and get married the next day. Why? Because you haven't had enough time to figure out all of the ins and outs of them, right? You need to know a few things about how they act, react, whether you're equally yoked before you jump into that. You gotta take some time because sometimes there's, there's certain things that only time can reveal. You've just gotta have some time and some familiarity. So we say that in the physical and that's wisdom. Let's be wise as a church. Let that man who may have all the passion and good intentions in the world, let that man interact with the body for a period of time. Let that man interact among those who are spiritual for a period of time and see if his fruit remain. See if he bears the marks of a spiritual man. See if he bears the commendation of a calling to ministry, then lay hands on him. Because they that are otherwise cannot be hid. This was Jesus' exhortation. We already went to Matthew chapter 7 and I told you it was within the context, that exhortation of false teachers. We go back a few verses and we see this clearly. Verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. That's what you got to look for. And fruit is only born in its season. Now, let me say one more thing about this as a warning to the church. I talked about the danger to the church of ordaining men who are unaffirmed, who are not spiritual. But you know what? There are oftentimes young men and they are ordained and they love the Lord and they bear the marks of, of salvation and they bear the marks of passion, but they're still struggling with some things as young men do. And they're thrust into the limelight way too early. They're identified and they're ordained and they're put up and they're made examples and they weren't ready. And not only can that become a, a, a devastation to the church, 
but that young man's spiritual potential might have been entirely undermined. And if he wasn't ready, and so he begins to play the hypocrite rather than the humble man, because he has to, because all the people around him are looking to him. He hasn't had the time to get his own house in order because now he's got a bunch of other houses to keep in order. And it was just too early to put him into the ministry. And he's not ready yet. And so he becomes a hypocrite. Not only is that going to hurt the church, but that man is being set up for a fall himself. And unless that man has the humility to, put, to, to properly orient himself, which is difficult to do, he's being set up for a fall of his own. How many lives of tremendous potential elders have been diverted by a church's misplaced desire to put him into ministry too early when he's not quite ready. All of these things come into play here. So we judge the spiritual fruit of a man. Don't just judge a man's morality. Don't just judge a man's knowledge. Judge his spirituality. Look for the fruit to be born in its season. And this is exactly what Paul says in verse 25. In this, in this we have the final call unto great care and patience and ordination. The number of ministers who fail out of the ministry in the West is not statistically insignificant. I was not a pastoral undergraduate in, in college, but I took a, a, a class with the pastoral ministry majors, and I remember one pastor standing up, and he said, okay, everyone stand up. And we all stood up, and, and these were all men who were in pastoral ministries, and then me. Uh, who wasn't, but was, knew I was headed in that direction. And he said, look to your right and look to your left. Five years after you all begin in the ministry, two of you will not be in the ministry anymore. Two of the three of you. And as it relates to my friends coming out of seminary, that man was absolutely right. The weakness of the church today, its impotence, must be in part the fault of the vast number of ministers who have no business being in the pulpit and leading churches. And this failure, fall, this failure falls in part upon the churches themselves who have lost either the courage, the knowledge, or simply the discernment and obedience to prayerfully and carefully ordained men. So what can we take from this today? I've already exhorted you in, for a number of weeks here to be careful about this. But let's take this, these two verses, verse 24 and 25, and let's Orient them to your own life. How are you doing today? Where, is, where are the marks of your spiritual fruit today? Are you, I don't believe we have in our midst today, at least as I can tell, anyone whose sin is open beforehand going before to judgment. There's no one here that has grabbed the reins of sin and carnality and said, I'm not letting go and, and, and just laughing on your way to perdition. I don't see that. But is there someone here who follows after? Have you been playing the game? And you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You've never actually allowed the, in, the, the, the Lord to come in and clean the inside of the cup. You've, you, you, you look the part. You sound the part. You know the part. You've played the part. You've done it. You, you've got it. You're good. No one's the wiser. But see, here's the thing. On the day of judgment, you're not going to stand before your pastor and your pastor are going to assess whether or not you should get in. You're going to stand before an all-wise, all-knowing God who knows your heart and you will, and the book of life will be opened and if your name's not found in it, he's going to say, depart from me. Has your name been written in the book of life? Do you know you're a sinner? Have you recognized your sin has separated you from God? Have you understood that there's no way that you can reconcile yourself to God? Have you ever fallen at the feet of Jesus Christ to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work of death, burial, and resurrection to be saved? Resting in what he has done for you, not on what you could do for yourself in any way, shape, or form. Not for what I can do for you, not for what your money can do for you, not for what your works can do for you. If you've not, would you make today the day? Next. Have you become one who, in your need to reflect some veneer of godliness have ceased to grow so that you can pretend to grow. You're living a lie. You're a hypocrite. You've accepted Christ as your Savior, but your growth has been stunted. You stopped growing. 
and you stop growing because you're, you're living in a measure of sin, carnality. You're doing things your own way, and there's, there's, there's no growth. There's no fruit. You know that you're a believer. You've seen the fruit unto salvation, but you're not seeing the fruit of the Spirit. And it's because at some point you got distracted and you became stunted, but no one could see that you were stunted because we live in this sanitized church system where you have to pretend like you look good and pretend like you're doing fine and pretend like you're not a sinner when you are. And there's no accountability because if you tell people that you're sinning and that you need help, they're going to judge you rather than help you. They're going to seek into your destruction rather than your restoration. And God forbid. God forgive us. Is that you today? Do you need restoration? Do you need help? Would you seek to the men of the church? Would you seek to the spiritual to help you through? Would you seek to accountability to start growing again, to bear that spiritual fruit again? Those marks are supposed to be there. Are they there? Are you growing? See, because they that are otherwise cannot be hid. The good works of some are manifest beforehand. Is that you? May it be so in our church this morning. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.